who indwells us will be our teacher tonight, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Um, continuing our thing about starting with a question or something. Uh, interesting, last uh, Sunday, uh, Bill closed, uh, Bill, Mike closed the service uh, with that going to the Apostles' Creed, remember, in the hymn book. I noticed something very interesting. I wanted to show you this. If you've got one of the hymn books here, take a look in the back and watch what happened. It shows you a little bit about church history. Um, I forgot where that reading was. Okay, 716. You could just take the hymn book out and look at that a minute. Now, those of you who have been going, coming on Thursday nights, I want you to see your powers of observation. Okay? Um, on this page, you have three creeds. Right? 716, 717, and 718. Okay, now, we all know 716 because that's a traditional creed of the church. Okay? Apostles' Creed. 717 is a later creed that was developed to uh, stem um, some heresies about Jesus Christ. And they amplified. The guys that put the Nicene Creed together basically took the Apostles' Creed, as you can see, and they built onto it. And if you'll see where they built onto it, they added extensive material on Jesus Christ because it turned out that the Apostles' Creed wasn't tight enough to prevent errors on who Jesus was. But what I want you to notice tonight is, what do you observe about the structure of the Creed of 716 and 717? And then flip over and look at this contemporary affirmation of faith, which is so typical of our evangelical world today. Turn to look at 718. What do you immediately notice about the difference, the, oh, a, major, a major difference in structure? I don't mean the sentences, but just subject material. Yes. First of all, see that contemporary starts with Christ. Now, I suspect they, some innocent little evangelical thought he was going to improve on uh, 1,900 years of church history. Well, there's a reason why those other creeds start not with Christ. How does the, how does the Bible start? with God as creator. How does the Apostles' Creed start? God as creator. How does the Nicene Creed start? God as the creator. And how does our contemporary affirmation of faith start? Can you, as you read down, look at all the content that they're talking about, where do you see anything about creation? You see one phrase in there. See? Now, there's nothing wrong with 718, okay? And there's no heresy in 718. And don't get me wrong. I mean, it's, there's nothing blasphemous about 718. It's, it, it's stating the truth. But there's a subtlety that's shifted. Between the, the time that those ancient creeds were made and the time our contemporary stuff is written, there's been a shift in how we think about God. What is the danger? Uh, remember when we went back to the basics? We've gone through this again and again, but repetition is great. It's the only way I ever learn. have it repeated. Why did we start the framework series with the act of creation? Besides the fact that, obviously, Genesis starts there. But 
What do we get out of the event of creation? How does that help us look at God? What does it do for us when we think of creation? It separates God from the creature. It starts off with a creator-creature distinction. We are not gods. And he is not part of this creation. He preceded it. And if the universe were to disappear tonight, he'd still be there. So, it's a, it's a, a momentous thing that ha- has happened. And there's nothing wrong with, with the creed of, of 718. I'm not saying there's particular things wrong with it. The problem with 718 is that the emphasis of the whole creed is not against the culture of our time. It's not talking against the culture of our time. 718, 716 and 717 were fighting words. When the Apostles' Creed was written, those guys weren't trying to be sweet and light. They were trying to be truthful over against the era of their time. That's how those creeds got written. They were trying to correct something. What you tend to find in our own contemporary circles is it's sort of like I say, it's following Dr. Feelgood kind of thing. It's all let's get together and we feel good together. And, I mean, obviously we want to feel good, but the problem not at the expense of truth. So, this is just another little thing that harps back to what we've been going over and why when we look at the biblical set of events, we keep looking at this set of events. Starts with creation, starts with a fall. You never get away from those basics over and over and over. They're simple, but if you let go of them, you rapidly descend. So it's just another interesting point. And you could extend this, those of you who are interested in music, uh, if you want, really want to do, do a number, is go through here someday in the hymn book and review the music that's in here. This is a, this is a typical uh, hymn book. I mean, it's a good hymn book. But it's, it's just typical of our time, though. And go through the hymns that when you read them, the content of those hymns have heavy theology in them. They're, they're hymns about the person of God himself. And then look at the kind of hymns that are talking about how we feel. Or, or talking about our hearts. Or talking about something else. Now, it's not wrong per se to talk about that. But to talk about that as a starting point and to talk about that at 90% of the time and God 10% of the time is an imbalance. And then, as another exercise, if you want to try that in a hymn book, after you've sorted out the hymns, you know, pick 15, 20 hymns at random. Go through and look at the content and ask yourself, are they pointing, when I sing this hymn, when the words go through my head, am I being directed to him? And then when you get done sorting the hymns out, look down the bottom and find out when they were written. And see if you don't notice a correlation in the time in which the hymn was written and the direction of the content of the lyrics. Well, that's just a a little application of of what we're trying to do here in the series, make us a little bit more aware of the fact that we have to have perspective on our own time and our own generation. It's not that we're, you know, against everything in our day. It's just that we have to have our feet planted on some unmovable object, some reference point, in order to be able to see where we're going in our own time. Tonight, we want to go to pull off some of the some kind. If you go back to page 85 in the notes, um, those are the those are the things that we studied 
as far as the um, conquest and settlement go. In fact, speaking of hymns, uh, my wife found um, a CD-ROM of, uh, or a CD uh, a music thing for uh, Handel's Israel and Egypt. And I think maybe as we get down to the end of the class and we've covered this sanctification thing, we don't have time this spring to get into the, the last event which I was going to deal with, which was uh, David, the ele- election and reign of King David. So we'll probably conclude about the third week in May. That's probably when we'll do it and then resume in the fall. Um, but uh, I thought maybe what we could do one night is to watch, if you, we'll, we'll take parts of that, uh, Handel's Israel in Egypt, and show you how, when Handel wrote that, uh, the theology that he put into it, and how his music kind of captured very well uh, some of the uh, emotion that surrounds the content of, of Exodus 15. It's a really neat, neat thing. But anyway, tonight, what we want to do is move from these events and the truths of these events, because again, we're looking at the conquest and settlement, the kingdom of God intruding itself into a corrupt civilization, and on the leading edge, the cutting edge of the kingdom of God as it expands, there's war. There's holy war. And from those principles, we now can move to a new area of truth called the doctrine of sanctification which is on page 86. And this has become our new areas. If you look on the chart up here, you'll see that we've covered, in the last two years, we've covered pretty much a lot of the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. And I hope as we've covered these, you've been able to see that if you, if you see these words, you can visualize them in terms of these events. What you want to be able to do is link them together. So, for example, we had a matching test. We could put a list of, of these words on the one side of the paper, put these events all scrambled on the left side of the paper, and you'd be able to match them. Because if you can do that, then that is a signal that you are, are grasping the flow of the Scriptures. That these events of Scriptures depict, in actual history, the content of those doctrines. And so when we come to Mount Sinai, remember, we dealt with these three because all these three have to do with the Bible. They're doctrines about God's revelation. Well, what did he do on Mount Sinai? He revealed himself. People who have problems, if, for example, you're discussing something or even, you're, even in your own heart, you have doubts about the errancy or the inerrancy of the Scriptures, uh, an exercise for you to do now that you've got these two linked together is to go back and read Exodus 19 and 20 and put yourself at the foot of Mount Sinai, pretend you're Moses and you climb all the way up to Mount Sinai and you hear God speaking. Then ask yourself the question, does he speak in a garbled way or did he speak clearly? If he spoke clearly, then if, is he putting us on, telling us lies, the God of truth, or not? And so if you can just visualize that, you won't have any problem with inerrancy because God obviously spoke and he obviously spoke clearly and he obviously spoke truthfully. If we didn't, we're in all big trouble. So Mount Sinai becomes a picture of all that's wrapped up in those doctrines. The doctrines take on three dimensions by looking at these events. And so now we're coming to this doctrine, the doctrine of sanctification, and we're looking at it through the eyes of the reports of the conquest and settlement because that was a struggle. 
Um, on um, page 86, I want to just make a few points before we look up some scriptures and get into some text. Um, the, the problem is that when you come to the doctrine of sanctification, you want to treat it as just as historically valid and as, as, as necessary to elaborate on this truth as you would all the other truths from the standpoint of Scripture and not personal experience. The tendency always is, in all these, you know, I mean, nobody would think of talking about election um, on the basis of personal experience. I mean, you'd think, well, gee, I have to read Romans, I have to read Ephesians, and so on. But when we come to sanctification, that's one area of truth where people kind of tend to want to build that doctrine out of somebody's experience, their experience, uh, one of their church heroes' experiences, a biography, or something like that. And what we want to remind ourselves tonight is, just like all the other doctrines, they have to be filled in with content from all of the scriptures. And there's a neat quote that I, I have for you on page 86 from B.H. Liddell Hart. And uh, I mentioned that last time, but it bears repeating. Uh, here's the man who wrote a lot of the theory behind modern warfare. Um, and, and a guy, basically, who, who I think is just brilliant in, in how he analyzes who, who wins wars, who wins battles. Well, Hart wrote, even in the most active career... The scope and possibilities of direct experience are extremely limited. A man can be in the army 20 years, and maybe he has six months of combat duty. I mean, actually in combat. And most guys go through 20 years in the military and have no experience in combat. A lot of exercises, a lot of war games, but never the real thing. And that's very true. Direct experience is too limited to form an adequate foundation for theory or application. And that holds true in the Christian life, that... Your personal experience isn't big enough for you to formulate conclusions about how God is going to grow you or grow your children or grow your parents or grow the church. You've got to go back to the Scriptures because only in the Scriptures do we have a broad enough base of experience, reported history, and how God really works to, to be careful in how we state this. Well, what I want to do as we go through the doctrine of sanctification like the other doctrines, I want to go through various topics. I want to break it down into certain topics. So the first sub-topic sub we're going to deal with under sanctification is what we call the phases of sanctification. And all we're doing here is we're not trying to get too heavy into theology, but we want to start distinguishing things because you can get confused and this is just a way of developing care in how we talk about it. We have studied in our course here, we have gone through the call of Abraham. Remember, that was the first redemptive covenant we read about. And we said when God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, what, what was the major issue that was happening? You remember? In other words, God, Abraham was in a pagan society. God called him out to start a program. What is the implication historically of the Abrahamic covenant? What at that point happened in, in human history that forever changed the face of the planet? In other words, had God not called Abraham out, how was God working prior to the call of Abraham? How was he talking to people? 
was he talking to just small groups or was he basically revealing himself to all, all the sons of Noah? All the sons of Noah, right. You had the Noahic Bible being transmitted tribally into all the, all the cultures of the world. So everybody heard. Then God called Abraham out. At that point, what does God begin to do in human history? He begins to concentrate revelation down to a subset of the human race now, the Jews. And we said that when that happened, that created the, the, the rejoinder you've all heard one time or another in your life, well, what about the heathen who never heard? See, it creates that. Because now God doesn't speak to the whole human race. He speaks through the sons of Abraham. There's an exclusivism that begins with that call in 2000 B.C. So what we want to understand is that if we were Old Testament saints, we've got to put ourselves in the, picture, in the, in the position of people in Joshua's day. They, their life was controlled by the call of Abraham. So if we depict that as a sort of uh, open circle, and I, I choose an open circle because there are things about the Abrahamic covenant that God hasn't yet revealed. He's made promises. Um, I don't think if you asked Abraham, he would have known about the virgin birth, but it's implied in that covenant. And so as history unfolds, God reveals more and more about that Abrahamic covenant. So we kind of keep it like an open circle. It's the only way I've got up here is a diagram to kind of keep it a little hidden. In other words, God is omniscient. He knows things we don't know. He's got surprises. And we don't know about those things, so we can't say we really know all there is to know about the Abrahamic covenant. And we said that out of the Abrahamic covenant came three promises. Remember those? Land. What was the next one? A seed. And then the worldwide blessing. The three major promises of the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis chapter 12. That's a sovereign statement about the shape of history. It's a statement about the fact that the seed of Abraham will be the means to bless the world. God isn't just going to bless the world. He's going to bless the world through Abraham from that point on. And that is going to be a mark of human history. What are some practical observations? If you are a student of history, you read about history, what does that say? Maybe I better get it in focus. Um, what does that say uh, about the shape of history as far as we can see the outworking? It says, first of all, there's going to be a group of physical seed of Abraham called Israel. And Israel is going to abide forever. So, if you have a madman like Hitler who wants to exterminate Jews, what do you know immediately about his program? It's going to fall flat in his face. Nobody is going to exterminate the Jews. Period. Can't nuke them, can't destroy them, never bother, you never do it. Why? Because God says you're not going to do it. That's why. And that's because the Jew is a vehicle in history for what things? What has the Jew brought to human history? He has been, over the centuries, the custodian of the Word of God. The Word of God is not a Gentile book. The Bible is a Jewish book. I used to have a friend of mine who was witnessing the Jewish guy one day, and the Jewish guy was giving a grief about something, and oh, you're always quoting the Bible. And this guy came back with the slickest answer. I, I would never have thought of this because I can't think that fast on my feet in that kind of a situation. And he came back with a slick answer. Look! That's not my book, it's yours. And that was a great answer. It's a Jewish book about a Jewish Messiah. 
that came out of a Jewish nation with a bunch of Jewish prophets. How much more Jewish can you get? So, the Abrahamic covenant structured and set up history. In fact, thinking about it for a moment, Jesus said, I'm not going to come back until Israel welcomes me. So in one sense, the Jews still the key to history because it will not be until they say, welcome is he who comes in the name of the Lord that he will come back. Jesus will not come back to this planet until Israel welcomes him back. That's one of the impediments to world peace in one sense. So that's the promise of Abrahamic covenant and it and is powerful, it's elective, it controls everything. So if you were a member of Joshua's army down here, and things were happening in your life, what would be some things that would be happening in your life as a Jewish believer in Joshua's day? Well, you were in war. And you might say, why do I have to go through all this? What is the big answer? The big answer as to why these things are happening in your life comes out of this. This controls the meaning, the destiny, and the position of an Old Testament saint controls ours too but I'm just trying to put it back in the Old Testament context the second thing and on page 87 what I and this, you have a similar diagram of this Abraham, the uh, covenant of Abraham um, if you look at in the middle there by the sad little six circle I say this covenant defined her meaning and purpose in history Israel would forever be at cultural odds with her environment Fiddle Around the Roof, famous statement in the middle of that movie was, God, can't you choose somebody else once in a while? I mean, it was a classic instance. You know, why am I always at odds with European culture, said this Austrian Jew. And the answer is because that's the way God set you into history. And we share that same principle, so we want to watch that the Abrahamic covenant as the electing sovereign call of God is, our, is, a, is like a positional truth. So this is, we call, call this the positional truth of sanctification. The positional meaning God has set up our position in history. And no matter what else happens in our lives, the meaning of our life is set in motion here. Now, if you come down further on page 87, we go to the Sinaitic Covenant. The Sinaitic Covenant, rather than specifying what Israel could expect of God, revealed what God expected of Israel. If the Abrahamic Covenant was written in the indicative mood, then the Sinaitic Covenant was written in the imperative mood. So what we're saying here is there are two covenants we've studied here that are redemptive. If we could draw the Mosaic Covenant as sort of a circle lying down on the ground, in a circle of light that tells us where God wants us to walk. He's telling us, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. That's the content of the Abrahamic covenant. And we call that the second phase of sanctification to distinguish it from the position. This is the experience. That's where our experience is. The experience is in obeying or disobeying. But we want to carefully distinguish our position from our experience just for the sake of getting these two straight here. The Jew, Jewish believer in Joshua's army had the meaning of his life tied in with the meaning of his nation, tied in with the meaning of history. 
Everything, the, this little, is tied into the large. And the thing that does that is God's plan of salvation. And it's that plan that creates our position. And it's not going to go away. And there's nothing we can do to change it. And there's nothing that Satan can do to change it. There's nothing that sin can do to change it. That is forever certain and sure. So it's important that we recognize that we have a position that God's Word defines for each of us. If we have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, we share the same elective plan that a Jewish believer in the Old Testament shared under that Abrahamic covenant. That God is doing something redemptively in history. We share that. Now what's different is that the Jewish believer in Joshua's day was obligated by a certain set of commandments in this Mosaic Covenant. So his experience was an experience of obedience or disobedience to that Mosaic set of rules. Our experience is our, is the, our experience of obedience or disobedience to the New Testament set of rules. But whether it's the Old Testament set of rules or the New Testament set of rules, the point is those are that, that, that's our daily experience area. But our daily experience is an outworking of the prior position that we have. So we can talk about positional sanctification and we can talk about experiential sanctification and we should distinguish between the two. Let's contrast them a little bit more. If we say uh, we are to love one another, are we talking about experiential sanctification or are we talking about positional sanctification? Now, watch it because we're really talking about both, but there's nuances to this. When, when in the ordinary sense of the word, when we're supposed to take care of one another and so forth, isn't that in the area of our experience? Now, we can be true to that or false to that. We can deny that. We can be disobedient to that and so on. But what's also true? Why does God tell us that? It's because of our position. And so the command to which we can be obedient or disobedient is rooted in our position. God has a right to expect that of us because of our position. So the position controls the experience and that's the thing we want to look at in the phases of sanctification. If there's nothing you get out of tonight's thing, get this one. The, the understanding and the meaning of everything that happens in your experience is controlled and depends upon your position in the elect plan of God. And so, just as the Jewish believer in Joshua's army, he could have been at Ai when they got slaughtered, or he could have been at Jericho when they were victorious. Now, the fact that in one instant at Ai, that army was disobedient and were collectively losers, or over here, they were obedient and collectively winners at Jericho, didn't change their purpose in history. Because after Ai, God worked and they recovered and they went to where? Where did God, what was the next big event we studied after the disaster at Ai? What did God stop? Stop the sun and the moon. Because they were obedient. So experience fluctuates. It's up and down and up and down. And if you get your eyes completely on your experience, you're in for a roller coaster ride. And this is the thing that gives a stability in the Christian life. If you think in terms of the roller coaster, any time you just get totally preoccupied with experience, you're going to go downhill. 
because our experience is never totally pleasing to God. It's a very discouraging thing to sit there and just look at experience upon experience upon experience and never relate it to the overall position of where we're going. And so you get out of the mold, uh, the Operation Roller Coaster over here, by looking back to here. Just as if you can imagine someone in Joshua's army thinking after the AI, what are we doing here? To think back, wait a minute, this is 1390 B.C. and 2000 B.C., God said we were Jews, we're going to have a unique role to play in history. He promised our father Abraham that we were to come in here and we were to destroy these Amalekites. Now, it's not going smoothly, but do we have any doubt about the ultimate outcome? You see, that's what gives the strength. We have no doubt about the ultimate outcome regardless of the experience of the moment. Now, that's a comforting thought. And you have to keep going back to that. So that's one of the things we want to say tonight is the phases of sanctification. Distinguish these two. Now, there's a third one that we're not covering now because we get into that in the prophetic sections of the Bible. But there's a third name. We've talked about positional sanctification. We've talked about experiential sanctification. And the third word is ultimate sanctification. And in ultimate sanctification, that's the grand time when experience does line up with a position and the redemption is finished, the resurrection and so forth. But obviously we're not there yet, so we're not going to emphasize that. We just deal with the, the first two. Now, there's some fine details about them, and we want to look at terms of the way the covenants are structured. So if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that takes us back to the Abrahamic covenant. It's a, it's a positional thing. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at two, ver two areas of the Bible. One has to do with a position. The other has to do with the experience. And we're going to look at this call of Abraham. In particular, we're going to look at how God... What, how God's anger is expressed when it comes to our position. If you turn to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, what does God say that he will do? And this is the protection clause for the Jewish existence in history, and not for his existence only, but for everyone who has trusted in Jesus Christ. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. In other words, there's a protection, so God curses those who try to oppose his redemptive plan in history. They will always fail. They may have victory for a moment, for a fleeting time, but they are doomed to failure because God curses them. I will curse him that curses you. Now notice who is getting cursed in verse 3. That's the Abrahamic covenant. Now watch what happens in the, in the cursing when it comes to the Mosaic covenant. If you turn over to Deuteronomy 28. In Deuteronomy 28.15, now who gets cursed? It shall come about, if you will not obey the Lord your God, to observe all His commandments and His statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. 
Now who's getting the curse? The cursing is not on the Gentiles. It's on Israel. So notice the difference between these two covenants. This covenant is a covenant of position. It defines the ultimate pathway through history. And the curse is upon those outside of the path. That's the big picture. Now, from moment to moment down through history, we can get cursed. We can get disciplined. But that doesn't stop the other one. Experiential sanctification is rooted in positional sanctification. The fact that God is going to curse Israel doesn't mean that Israel is not going to survive in history. The fact that God disciplines us, sometimes very harshly, doesn't mean that we've lost our salvation. It doesn't mean that God is through with us. But he can be rough with us. So, if you notice in these phases, that's why these two phases are so important. And if you look in the quote, uh, down at the bottom, page 87, I quote uh, an old, uh, a scholar of the uh, ancient documents, Dr. Weinfeld, and he makes this observation. While the treaty, now the treaty is like the Mosaic Covenant. What he's looking at is two different formats in history. In other words, when he's looking at documents out of the ancient world, he's looking at two kinds. One is a treaty and the other is a grant. And these were actually written documents and he's talking about how do you distinguish a treaty from a grant. The grant is analogous in its format and structure to Genesis 12, Genesis 15, i.e. the Abrahamic Covenant. So, what, when they look back in ancient history, they see these grants. The grants are very parallel in their wording to this. God grants blessings to Abraham. But when they look at the treaty documents, they are very analogous to Mount Sinai, when God established his father-son relationship with the nation. So, what Weinfeld points out is that while the treaty constitutes an obligation of the vassal to his master, now, plug in that sentence, while the Mosaic Covenant, or the Sinaitic Covenant, if you want to, just get the analogy, while the Sinaitic Covenant constitutes an obligation of the believer to God, the suzerain, the grant constitutes an obligation of the master, God, to his servant, the believer. See the difference? That is fundamental difference. And sad to say, there are many people in Protestant evangelical Christianity that mishmash these two covenants together. These covenants are distinguished. They are two, there's two different dispensational administrations of God's will in history. And they're seen in these two covenant forms. In the grant, the curse is directed towards the one who will violate the rights of the king's vassal. So which one is that parallel? The curse is directed towards the one who violates the rights of the king's vassal. Is that Genesis 12 or is that Leviticus? Genesis 12. Then he says, while in the treaty, the curse is directed toward the vassal who will violate the rights of his king. And that's Leviticus. See? So, the Bible has these two distinctions. It's a very clear distinction. And that parallels passage in the, Old Te in the New Testament. Now, when you come to the New Testament, this gives you a tool. If you read in the New Testament text somewhere, uh, be filled with the Spirit, it's an imperative for those who had problems in English. <laughs> um, verbs have mood, and we're going to 
talk about the indicative mood and the imperative mood. Imperative mood, the subject orders the object, says, do this, don't do this. Indicative is a description. The subject just talks about the object. But this one is a command. Now, when we have an imperative in the New Testament, anywhere in the New Testament, where you're reading Paul, you're reading along, walking the light, blah, 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 it's an imperative. What are we talking about? Position or experience? Go back to the Old Testament. Which covenant has all the imperatives in it? Mosaic. Sinaitic. Which covenant is defining their experience, their obligations on a day-by-day basis? Mosaic. So where you see the imperatives in the New Testament, it's talking about experiential sanctification. It's a command. God says, I expect you to do this. I expect you not to do that. But when you read, for example, in Ephesians 1, and it talks about you are blessed in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus. Now what are we talking about? The position, just like the Abrahamic covenant. So if you'll read the New Testament, that distinction of mind all of a sudden starts maybe illuminating passages. And you set those in, in conversation. When you read, for example, in the communion, what's often read, 1 Corinthians 11, examine himself, let him so come, so forth. Uh, or it says, and it says to Corinthians, it says, because some of you didn't examine yourselves, you are weak, sickly, and some have died. Now what's that talking about? That's obviously discipline, and it's discipline on believers in the Corinthian church. Is that experiential or is that position? It's experiential. It's analogous to the Mosaic Covenant, those cursings in Leviticus. See, the same principle. If you read, for example, in the um, New Testament, where it talks about um, um, God um, in eternity past, uh, new foreknew us in Christ, what's that talking about? It's talking about, it's indicative, it's not an imperative, there's no command involved. It's an obligation of God. He's announcing, here's what I did for you. Can you change that? No. Could a Jew have changed the Abrahamic covenant? No. Might have wished to change it, but he couldn't. Why? Because God had already done it. So positional, to get anchored in the position that we enjoy in Christ, is very important because that sets up what can't be changed. Whatever happens in our life, at least that is not going to change. The experience will change. But that won't change. And that's very important to go back to again and again and again and again. And so that's why we talk about these phases of sanctification. Position and experience. Alright, if you go further, um, on page 89, we'll move over to one more topic tonight. By the way, just before we move on to that topic, third paragraph on page 89, where I talk about the life of faith depends on putting these two phases of sanctification in proper perspective. We are to obey what God asks of us in the lower circle of light, the Mosaic Covenant, the imperatives, while we trust Him to provide what He promises in the open circle above. See, the Jews in Abraham's, in uh, Joshua's day had to trust that this campaign of holy war is going to work. Now, did they really have a promise in the Mosaic Law Code? What is true of all the promises in the Mosaic Law? It's, they're all prefixed with, if you do this, 
then I will do that. So if I'm sitting here and I've really blown it, do I have leverage anymore with the imperatives? No, because I disobey. So if I just look on what God wants me to do or what He doesn't want me to do and I ignore what He has promised, my faith goes away. Because I know I've sinned. I know I've displeased Him. Now what do I do? If I've displeased Him and is, He's going to bless me if I do this, well, I know I didn't do that. Now what do I? What happens to me? So that's why it's, you have to blend the two. And that's why a Jew and Joshua's army would have to go back and say, okay, we screwed up at Ai. But the big picture is that we are God's chosen people and He is going to send us into the land that He promised Abraham. That's the big picture. So we may have blown it today, but the, the big picture hasn't changed. So that's a, uh, it's a tool. It's a basic tool to utilize this doctrine with. Okay, one other thing we want to deal with, a second area in sanctification, is we want to carefully look at something else that's often blurry. What is the aim in sanctification? Good question to ask. What, what's it all about? Ultimately, what are we talking about? We're talking about sanctification. What is God trying to work out in us? And it's clear, first commandment. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, with all thy soul. That's what he's trying to work out in experience. Now, the problem is that if, we, if we're sloppy here, we're going to get confused. How does God work out this goal today? It's, it's a struggle. Is the struggle to get there due to sin... Or would there have been at least pressure had Adam and Eve not fallen to get there? Is the impediment to get there due to sin? That's obviously impediment, but what I'm trying to get at is if you could place yourself back in the Garden of Eden prior to the fall. So it gets back to this diagram that we've gone on again and again where I show the difference between creation and the fall. That zone when you had the universe had been created but hadn't fallen yet. So existence was not defined by evil like our existence is. So we live in an abnormal world. We always have to say, wait a minute, I live in an abnormal world. Let me think of what it would have liked in a normal world. Okay, in a normal world, in the Garden of Eden, did Adam and Eve have a test? Yes, they did. Yes, they did. This aim was required to be developed by historic obedience regardless of whether there was sin or not. Now, you may doubt that, but as an interesting test, chapter 5. Now, let's look at the Lord Jesus Christ as a test case. Did the Lord Jesus ever sin? No. He was the perfect lamb without spot or blemish. Now, if He was, what do we make of verse 8 then? Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. This, this is a very provocative verse because it reveals something about Jesus Christ. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Now that's interesting. 
What are some implications of that verse now? If this is Jesus Christ on a timeline when he was born and he grew as an adult 30 plus years, see? God is saying in Hebrews that during this time he learned. In short, he was being experientially sanctified. But without sin. Without sin. But he had to learn. Now, what is true of your dog that's not true of you? Besides the fact that he walks around all fours. Um, what's true of animals as far as learning to take care of themselves and so forth versus how we are? What do you know is the big difference between the human, Homo sapiens, and any other kind? They all are born with instinct. We aren't. It's peculiar that Homo sapiens has to go through a learning process. Do you know any other animal that the young stays with the parents as long as ours, proportionally? Why do we have to stay so long in the nurture of a home? Why does our kind do that? Cats don't, dogs don't, birds don't, but we do. It makes us different. It's because we're made in God's image and there's something going on. And the something is that we don't have it all instinctive. Yeah, we breathe automatically and there's certain instinctive behavior about But generally speaking, it's all learned. And that's not so in many of the animals. Animals can learn, yes. But proportionally speaking, they learn a lot less than we learn. We have to learn an awful lot of stuff. Now, what this is saying is that Jesus learned. And it's a very important verse because it proves that a sinless man had to learn to be sanctified. Which proves that sanctification had to happen regardless of the fall. Regardless of evil. This shows that Adam and Eve were supposed to have started learning what it means to obey God. So, what that tells us this aim of sanctification, what this tells us is that the, the whole process that we're going through is hindered by sin. It's tougher because we now live this side of the fall. We live east of Eden. Because it's hard. We have death. We have suffering. The things which Jesus suffered, a lot of what He suffered was due to our sin, not His. So, it's our own sin. It's others' sins. All of that. That adds to the pressure of sanctification. But that's not ultimately involved in sanctification. In sanctification, walking around in Palestine, rubbing shoulders with the human race, eventually going to a, getting nailed to a cross and dying for us. And it was those acts of this perfect God-man that created the righteousness that now God can credit to us. See, that's how much pressure was on Christ. You stop and think of it. I mean, you talk about the President of the United States or somebody with a lot of pressure on. Back during the Cold War, you know, you saw the President and uh, here was this Air Force officer always with that, that satchel walking around with the President. You know what's in there? The, the contact point for the nuclear missiles. The President could turn around and say, press the button. And he always had to be there. The President couldn't go anywhere. Couldn't go to play golf without that Air Force officer always carrying the briefcase. 
Must have got tired of seeing that sucker. But the point was to think of the awesomeness. You press that button and you're going to f- turn the human race into crispy creatures. So that's your responsibility. And it hangs in there day after day after day. Well, think of the responsibility of Jesus Christ. Now we perhaps can understand what he was going through in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because if he screwed up, history would have unfolded. A lot of pressure on him to do that. So that's how he learned obedience. All during this time, up to the cross, he was learning what it meant to obey God under pressure. And he did it. And it's that historic righteousness credited to our account. Now, what's so neat about this and why Hebrews brings it out, verse 8, he was a son, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. That's in the context of the fact, if you go back to Hebrews chapter 4, you back up just a minute, that's why it makes sense in verse 14 at the end of chapter 4. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, yet we, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence. Now that is a wonderful passage if you understand this. What that means is, unlike the Muslim who goes to this Allah, Allah never walked around the face of the earth. Allah never got dirt under his fingernails. Allah never learned obedience. Allah never died for all the Muslims. Allah doesn't know if he exists, doesn't know what it means to be to walk around and face the crud that we face as human beings. But our God does. Why? Because he walked around the face of the earth. That's the incarnation of Christ. So these are the central great truths of the Christian faith. And we come back here, and if you look at the diagram on page 90... That's what I've been trying to say for the last 15 minutes. Before the fall, we still had the aim of loyalty. That's what history is all about. After the fall, we still have the aim of loyalty. But what's changed? After the fall, now it's harder because we have the impediments that are sin, evil, and its consequences. So, the whole aim of sanctification is to develop the character of obeying our Father through trusting Him. Now, what haven't I said? Let's, let's review a few things. Notice what we have not said the aim of sanctification is. The aim of sanctification is not living a moral life. didn't say that. We said we're living a life where we're trusting the Lord. Now, yes, they're somewhat related, obviously. But there can be people who can live a very moral life and have nothing to do with this. So, we're not saying the aim of sanctification is morality. Satan never committed an act of immorality. But he sinned. So, what we're talking about is a trust and obedience to the Father. What we're not talking about, you notice we haven't said, having a wonderful, uh, ecstatic spiritual experience. Now, there is a wonderful sense of peace and fellowship with God. Undeniable. But is that the aim of sanctification? Or is that an accompaniment to 
sanctification. That's an accompaniment, a blessing here and there that we get. But to sit and crave and demand that every week we have to have this ecstatic experience or the Lord's not blessing me is wrong. Jesus didn't have a very ecstatic experience in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he turns around, everybody's sleeping. Real, that really creates an you know, impression that my friends are really with me here. And then he sees the police come in to arrest him. That's not having a good day. So sanctification can proceed in advance whether it's a good day or a bad day. You don't need good days. Having good days isn't the aim of sanctification. It's an accompaniment, hopefully. Some other things. It is not getting a good reputation in front of people. It's not the aim of sanctification. Sometimes that's confused. Sometimes you're not going to have a good reputation in front of people just because you're being sanctified. Or you will be misunderstood by a lot of people because you're being sanctified. Was Jesus understood by his own brothers and sisters, by the way? We don't read of one of his brothers or sisters becoming a Christian after he died. Now, was that due to the fact he didn't live a Christ-like life? So the question then must be that it's possible to be totally and thoroughly misunderstood by people living with you in your own family. But that's ultimately not the issue. The issue is this. That's the issue in sanctification. All right, what we're going to do is we're going to next time, we're going to cover the means of sanctification. If you look at the notes, what we try to do here, and this is kind of hairy, because it gets into two things that are often in conflict. I just want you to see this on page 91. We're going to deal with the word law, and then on page 92, we're going to deal with the word grace. And both of those are involved in sanctification. Not one, but both. And unfortunately, we can rock between one, emphasizing one to the point we screw it up, to the point we go over here and emphasize the other one and screw it up. So, it's trying to create a balance here and understand law and grace. So, I'd encourage you to, to read that section and uh, it's, as I've tried to struggle through and, and look at some of those passages that we cite there. Father, we thank You for our time tonight and we thank You that You have provided for us and we pray that You would uh, draw our hearts to see the big picture when we get downcast over the little details. That we uh, can look forward to the, Your historical plan that doesn't change, the same yesterday, today, and forever because You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that we can stumble and fall and have our bad days. But that doesn't change our position. That doesn't change what Jesus Christ has done for us. And we thank you that we have this rock on which to constantly go back to, constantly trust. We give you thanks through our Savior's name. Amen. Some people have to get out of here tonight, so we'll just some of you have some pressing questions. I'll be here for a few minutes.